from St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. A listener note before we get started. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, March 23rd, the day before the Missouri Senate passed their version of a congressional redistricting map. The Missouri legislature is back in session after a week away, with a lot still on their list of things they want to accomplish. In addition to passing a budget, bills on elections, COVID-19, as well as sports betting are moving their way through the chambers. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Republican Representative Bill Hardwick joins the show to talk on how he feels the 2022 legislative session is going so far. As the representative whose district includes military base Fort Leonard Wood, he also lends his opinion on whether Missouri's military bases should remain in the same congressional district. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in the Jefferson City studio, he is the Missouri House representative for the 122nd district, which consists parts of Pulaski County as well as Fort Leonard Wood. Bill Hardwick. Thank you for joining me on the show, Representative. Before we get started, I'd love it if you reminded our listeners about your district, uh, where it covers, and who you represent. Right now, District 122 is mainly Fort Leonard Wood, the military base, and the southern portion of Pulaski County. It'll be 121 where I live uh, next year, I guess, after the election. And that still will encompass most of Fort Leonard Wood. There's some rural areas in northern Pulaski County. And it's really a great district. It's people all over the world who moved there from the military, a huge Department of Defense presence. It's almost like there's a city in the middle of rural Missouri that people move to and, and flock to. And then there's just a huge supportive community, military supportive community outside of it. It's a great district to represent. So, you know, this is your sophomore year as a legislator. How is this year different compared to last year? It's my uh, second freshman term. So I'm not, a, yeah, I'm not a sophomore okay, yet. Okay, explain. <laughs> people, no, people see me, they think this guy's been around the block quite a bit for sure. He knows, he knows the ropes. But no, so, uh, you know, four sessions, four two-year sessions. Colloquially, they say freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. I got elected in 2020. Last session was my first session. This session is my second session. Both of them seem like they're unusual, right? They're different, but I don't really have a good basis for comparison to know what's unusual. But it seems like every session is similar in that it's its own kind of session. What makes you think this year different uh, compared to others? Well, we've got a perfect storm of all kinds of things. There's the post-census redistricting. There's um, this kind of the world around us. There's a, the huge shakeup, the earthquake that happened when Roy Blunt announced his retirement, and that kickstarted a huge Senate race. And then people running for Senate started the dominoes. People running for Congress, and then State Senate and State House. So there's a big shakeup that maybe happened, and that's at the backdrop of a, of a really interesting, exciting, from your point of view, exciting, energized midterm election that we're going into, where there's a huge fight for control of the U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate between Republicans and Democrats nationally. So all those things are happening simultaneously. 
And so there's a lot going on that makes this kind of interesting and, and takes up a lot of oxygen for some of the issues that we're debating. Yeah. So how do you feel like it is impacting this session, all these kind of wider scope issues kind of impacting Jefferson City? Well, there's some there's some ways I think it's good, because when we're running in elections, we're running in primaries, when we have, you know, a lot of these districts are going to have a brand new congressional representative, a brand new state senator, state rep. I think that I hope that means to forcing function for us to go back to the people and listen to them and say, what are you concerned about? And in theory, that's the way a, de- a democracy, a representative democracy like ours should work, is that we have these forcing functions that say, we want to get elected. We want to have a job. How do we do that? We need to be responsive to the concerns of the people. So I hope that's some of the product. And if, even though that's a messy process, and that means we have different viewpoints that clash, different perspectives and interests that clash, I think it's good that we're representing those interests in a more substantive and sort of more vocal way, because I hope that means that we're doing a better job representing the concerns of the people. And you said that in a positive way, in a negative way, kind of how it was impacting uh, In a negative way, um, that means that uh, people are going to want things, and they're going to want certain interests to be heard and to go through the process and maybe become law or to be um, to be recognized and maybe our budgeting priorities or what statutes we pass. And that means a lot of people that want things or want their interests heard aren't going to be able to get them. And that means that there's good, there's some contradiction. There's some conflict, I guess, right? We can only do so many things. We only have so much opportunity. And some of our, our propositions for bills are mutually exclusive. I can, I, You can have that, but you can't have that. There's a little zero sum. And if, you know, for example, we just did perfected sports betting, whether or not we have legal sports betting, you know, we can or can't. So somebody's going to be a, a winner, so to speak. Somebody's going to be a loser. And that means maybe that people, um, they could be discouraged in the process or feel like maybe their constituents versus w- weren't heard. Or maybe, um, you know, some people, if you feel like you get frustrated, your your priorities aren't being elevated and working through the process. You're like, what, you know, what am I doing here? And, and that's a lot people have to deal with too, right? But that's part of the process and that's okay. And I think that um, the, the good attitude to have is that you're here and you're fighting for what you believe in on some level. Everybody is. Everybody came here for a reason. And, um, and you're, you're, you're speaking up. That's what we should be doing as representatives. And you don't take it personally when somebody disagrees with you or somebody tries to oppose your bill or your position. That's their job. Their job is to say I oppose it. So that's why we have a conversation about, okay, how do we make it? We build a majority coalition. Let's take a vote on it. And that's part of the process. And so as long as we don't take that process personally, as long as we know we're here to serve and, um, and we take heart that just by expressing our values, we're, we're doing part of what we're here for, then I think that's good. But the, the pitfall is probably, if, you know, we get into that cycle of conflict and we feel discouraged about it, you know, that could, that could create a not good working environment for some people. But I hope we don't do that. And I don't think we will. Like most people I talk to today, they're in good spirits, ready for the eight-week stretch. They're excited about what we can do the last eight weeks and what, you know, what this year is going to bring. And so I am too. So uh, I promise our listeners we will talk about sports betting uh, later, but I, I kind of just want to talk about session in general. Like, yeah. You know, we're, we're halfway through. You know, how do you feel that it's gone so far as far as bill passing or accomplishing things? Well, for a lot of House members' point of view, it's going great in the House. The House, you know, we passed a, a third read a lot of bills out of the House, passed them in the House. Third read's the vote that effectuates the House passing it. And we're just like with a T-shirt cannon shooting bills over to the Senate, you know, like in these batches. And that's okay because the uh, part of the House's job, the House has, we have smaller districts to represent. There are fewer people in our districts. So in theory, we should be, we should be closer to the people. It's more easy to, to talk to your House member and come up here and say, hey, I'm upset about this. I want you to address this, right? Then a senator, just because there's more people, smaller districts. That's the idea. And so a lot of our function is to say, hey, you have a concern. We're going to address it. We're going we're gonna to do something about it. We're going to make a proposal. And part of the Senate's function is to say, let's deliberate on that a little little more. 
And let's really think about senators have bigger districts, about 180,000, 200,000 people maybe they represent. Some of those Senate districts are multiple counties. They have, by definition, a bigger electorate. So maybe part of their function is to think about, okay, St. Louis and Kansas City might be different than Branson and Springfield, might be different than Fort Leonard Wood, might be different than St. Joe. So, okay, what, what's a good policy that'll, that'll fit more people's needs? And that's part of their job, too. So I don't, I don't begrudge that. They say the Senate will, you know, kill a lot of bills, you know, so to speak. That's part of their job, too. They're there fighting for what they believe in, and that's okay. Do you feel that um, the work on the Senate is possibly slower than normal? I feel like there's kind of a frustration. I mean, the House right away, you know, they passed redistricting, which we'll also talk about. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of these things in the Senate, you know, most days, at least up until truly this week, maybe a little bit before, you know, they had trouble getting through the journal. Yeah. And so I'm curious if, if, if that led to kind of frustration on the House or kind of a, you know, why should we pass things if, if they're just going to sit there? So what's normal? I mean, people, yeah, people say that, like, what should the Senate be doing? Or I've, I've heard people, and I'm, and I'm going to be deferential to what's happening in the Senate, what's been happening. They go, senators, do your job. But what is your job? If you believe something's bad, or like the sake redistricting, if you really believe um, that we should have a 7-1 map, if that's what you believe, you campaigned on that, you believe that, and you believe that's important, and the the the, uh, the, mer- the power in America and the legislature is in the balance, and you want to do all you can to do that, and that's your genuine belief, and you fight for that, then you are doing your job, and you're doing your job from your constituents' point of view. And somebody else who goes, you know what, I want a map that maybe I think has this uh, community's interest together, maybe meets uh, different standards constitutionally, I th- with re- whatever reason, right? They're doing their job, too. So what's the Senate supposed to be doing? It's supposed to go ahead and manage this conflict of what people want. So I think, they're, I think they are doing their job. I think there will be some products that come out of the Senate. Now, as I, as I talk, it's March, it's March 23rd. Is it okay to say the date? Yeah, we're recording this on March 23rd. Yeah, so filing ends March 29th next week. And so filing could close without new congressional maps. And that is in, it's, it has ambiguity. How do we deal with that? You know, and I've heard lots of different smart lawyers have different ways that there's an outcome. Some people say, we, you know, we keep the same maps. Some people say we have at-large districts. Some people say, well, that makes the court draw the map. And we don't really know. There's uncertainty there. But it's okay to embrace that uncertainty, too. And I don't mind that, right? I don't mind that because um, we should all have a voice in the process, and that's okay. So I'm not critical of any senator saying, you know, I want to I pump the brakes. My priority is not being heard. Because I think that if they're doing it in good faith, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. It, you know, the, the question is, though, is it – Yeah. In good faith, or is it to a point where, (laughs) you know, it's kind of being of delaying to delay or if it leads to, you know, only one bill being passed at midterm becoming law, you know, is that worth it, you think? I mean, is Uh, it worth it to to speak on your constituents? So who judges whether it was worth it? Abraham Lincoln said, I submit my my decisions and my actions to the higher judgment of the people. So you say it's you say what I'm doing is worth it. I'm going to take a stand here. I'm going to say this is a this is an issue that I must stop, you know, stop at the process on. Okay. So who decides if you, that was a worthy cause or not? The voters. If you're turned out, you know, if you have other political goals or whatever, the voters get to decide that they build in the process. The voters who are deciding if they want to vote for Democrats or Republicans or vote for more conservative members of the legislature, they discount that in the process. So I think everybody just should do the best they can, what they think is right. And the voters will judge whether they agree with it at the end of the day. And that's actually cool. That's, there's not, but as I say that, I have a whole lot of bills that I want to get passed. And I realize that my priorities might not be successful. And a lot of people feel that way. But that's okay, too. You know, uh, Roy Blunt, who's retiring, he always said this thing. He said, the voters are never wrong. You know, you always go, well, they, they should have known this. They should have decided this. They missed this. Well, that's your job to make the case to them. And if you also have a priority, 
you could go, well, the Senate's just, you know, dysfunctional, the House, whatever, is doing this, you know, the, you know, the executive branch, the courts. But it was your job to sell what you wanted to all those groups. It was your job to build the coalition for governing. It was your job to make the case. And if people didn't agree with you, that's, a, that's, what, that's part of their function. They got elected to express their opinion, too. So I think all of that's okay. And there will be some bills passed, I think. This, this session is going to have some, pretty, you know, some good things for the people of Missouri, I think. There will be some bills passed. And there will be some bills that don't pass. And if they didn't, it's because you didn't convince the other senators and representatives that your priority should have been voted on by them. And, you know, you failed to convince them. You failed to get a coalition. And uh, that's okay. Coalition, coalition government and the legislature is probably the best way to do it because we get the most inter- interest integrated into the bills. So seeing, uh, you know, this past week, you know, are you more a little more optimistic now than maybe you could have been a couple weeks ago to see legislation kind of moving oh, now? Yeah. yeah, I feel like every bill I filed is going to pass and be signed by the I'm just joking, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. I am optimistic. I uh, I am optimistic because, you know, there are a lot of people in this building who I don't agree with on everything. But I was just thinking about this the other day. Everybody had a reason why they wanted to come here. You know, and uh, there are a lot of good people here. And, uh, you know, even if we don't agree or we don't get the bill passed we want, we know that people that have good motives are here. And so I'm just optimistic about that generally. And I was, you know, somebody else I was talking to, you know, they're like, well, I'm not successful if I don't get this done. I'm like, well, you're here. You're here in this building. And that's its own measure of success. You know, you made your case. You're here. You get to have a voice in the process. You get to speak up. You get to ask questions on the floor. You get to ask questions in committee. You get a chance to say what you think is right or wrong, and people listen to you when you say that. And that's something in itself to be, to be proud of and to, and to not be dismissive of, just being here and part of the process. So no matter what passes or doesn't pass this year, I feel good because I know that I came here. I said, hey, I believe in certain things. I'm going to fight for them. I know other people did too. You know, and some things are going to pass and some things aren't, and sometimes I'm going to get outvoted. I've been outvoted before, and that's okay too, right? You come back every day and just do the best you can. And I think people should have that attitude. And that's a good attitude for the legislature to have. On the topic of redistricting, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on the House-approved map. Yeah. Um, why did you vote for the House version? Yeah, I voted for a map that, um, you know, it, it, in, it's a 6-2 map. But a good point is to say we, ca- we call it 6-2-7-1-5-3-8-0. But, but voting patterns and behaviors are not static. They change from election cycle to election cycle, and they change from candidate to candidate. So... You know, is it really a 6-2 map or a 5-3 map or a 7-1 map? Well, again, if those districts are competitive or they're close, it's up to us to make the best case for the voters. Now, I want the Republicans to win Congress. I think it's really important for our country. There are a lot of reasons I think that's country important for the laws that we pass, for the individual rights that I try to, to stick up for, for our economy, for our national security. I think the Republicans should be in charge of Congress. I think it's what the, I hope the voters decide to do that because I think it's best for all those issues. Um, when... You know, there's an interesting, I think Sean Trendy has an interesting article about when you gerrymander, there's so much, so much gerrymandering you can do where you reshuffle, right? And those districts may become more competitive. And if, they're, if the districts become competitive, like we're seeing in Illinois and Maryland, where those legislatures or those states gerrymandered into a point where even some of the Democrat incumbents feel like they could be in jeopardy if there's a strong Republican year, that's not something you necessarily want to do. So to me, what'd be better is, is to have districts that that, you know, makes sense, that um, are representative of our communities, right? Like Pulaski County has a good person in Congress representing them. Cape Girardeau does, Branson does, right? That, that's going to do a good job. And then the Republican Party goes to the people and they make their best case for why conservatism is the policies they should follow. And it, again, that's their job to do that, to convince the voter. 
But I don't know how who's going to live where in St. Louis County or in the suburbs of Kansas City in six, 18 years. I don't know how that's going uh, to shake out. If you look at, s- at some of those maps, Donald Trump won a lot of the maps in the 7-1, a lot, a lot of the districts in 7-1. But other candidates in off years that had different um, electorates and different campaigns because they're all individual, maybe the Republican lost in those districts. So you say 7-1, um, We do have, I think, we, you know, the Republican Party is presently has more electoral strength in Missouri presently, but all things change. And uh, it's better to me to think to have a map that makes sense, that we know we're going to get a delegation. And then we just have the Republicans go make their case to the people. And uh, that's probably a better long range strategy. But I can't predict, you know, you can, some of those maps, the Democrats could win four of those seats in, in six or eight years. Right. And that's something we don't want either. So it's probably better if we just vote for the map we think is best, meets the criteria, is sensible. Right gives good representation for people. And that's kind of what I did. That was the map available to me. There was another map introduced by uh, you know, Ron Hicks. He came on a few weeks ago. Ron, great guy, super good guy. He proposed a map, and you know, I think he referred to it as a 7-1. Okay, I really didn't have time to evaluate that map. And there's some things, you know, like Kansas City and Branson were linked in it. I was like, well, I'm not sure, you know. It's hard for me to say if that's going to have what the numbers are, what the implications of that map is. So I didn't vote for it. But then the map that came out of the elections committee that, that the House passed, made sense. You know, there was a lot of uh, research done into it. it. Seemed like it was going to work. I voted for that map. But I'm okay for changes to the map, you know, if we have that discussion. And there may be a map coming back for the Senate, and maybe we'll look at that. But, it's, you know, the map that's before you, that's the one you have to evaluate. And you have to think, well, I can't predict four, six, eight years what the electorate looks like, what the issue is going to be. Four, eight, four, six, eight years ago, we wouldn't have predicted that um, COVID would have been an issue. We wouldn't have known how that changed the electorate. Donald Trump is a black swan event that rejumbled the electorate. Uh, there's lots of things that happens that we can, you know, what's happening in Ukraine. That's a new event that people are going to discount to the voting process. So we can't predict those things. We could just say, okay, let's do what makes the most sense. And then when the time comes to that election, let's stake out our issues clearly and make the best case we can. So something that's been debated, talked about with this map is uh, Missouri's military bases, which are yes. uh, Whiteman Air Force Base in Johnson County and Fort Leonard Wood in Pulaski County. Uh, the current map splits those bases up. There's been a conversation over having them be in the same district. You represent Fort Leonard Wood. I want to know your opinion on that. Yeah, so the, our federal representative is really important to Fort Leonard Wood. There's a huge federal investment that goes into that base. There are thousands of civilian federal employees there are tens of thousands of soldiers that come through there every year for training or that live there that are permanently stationed there. And a lot of those issues, what ha- Fort Leonard Wood's exclusive federal jurisdiction. So those are all federal issues that occur on that base. And it's all federal funding that keeps those missions going. And Fort Leonard Wood has an important part for our national security. The U.S. Army Engineer School, Military Police School, and Chemical School are there. So that's protection, warfighting function. That's a big part of our ability to go and project forces around the world and protect them and sustain them, as we're seeing is really important. So it's really important to me that we have a congressman who can be responsive to Fort Leonard Wood's needs and that knows how vital that mission is, not just for our national security, but for our state's economy and for the economy of that region. Fort Leonard Wood's uh, economic driver supports Rolla, the lake, Lebanon, Springfield. There's all kinds of activity that happens there that is an economic stimulus for the area around them. So it's important to me. If we divide it up, there's some pros and cons. So maybe a pro is there's two congress Congress people, there's two congressmen who have Fort Leonard Wood in their district that that makes sense that they had that they'll listen, they'll care about Fort Leonard Wood. Maybe a con is that Pulaski County is no longer a population center because it's divided up. So there are fewer registered voters living in each of those congressional districts. So they're not as important, maybe, in the scheme of things as counties and cities that have bigger population. So they're definitely pros and cons. And I'm not against uh, dividing Pulaski County. There could be a good good thing that happens there. 
um, to me, it's almost more important who's sitting in those congressional seats and whether or not they realize the vital importance of Fort Leonard Wood, not just for our defense strategy, but also for our state, and that they're going to be accessible to us, you know, not just the constituents and the representatives, but to, you know, to our state. And, um, and they're going to do a good job representing Fort Leonard Wood. So that's even more important. So I'm not sold whether or not it's a good or bad idea. I think there's pros and cons. But um, I just hope that our congressional de delegation continues to know the importance of Fort Leonard Wood. So either way, you don't really have a preference of it being in one district of both bases or Fort Leonard Wood having kind of its own yeah. district person, as it were? Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the negative is the, the voting population divided and mm -hmm. that, what that means for how Pulaski County is represented. But there, it could be good things beyond that, too. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. And our guest today is Representative Bill Hardwick, who represents the 122nd District, which includes parts of Pulaski County and Fort Leonard Wood. He is a Republican. Let's get back into it. So I kind of want to talk about uh, some of the bills that you filed, one in particular right now, um, which is House Bill 1686, yes. which you had a hearing this morning in the Senate about it. Oh, that's right. um, it creates provisions on the right to refuse a, a COVID-19 vaccine. Walk me through this bill. So at first, I think that the COVID-19 vaccine mandates do pose a problem. They pose a legal problem, how we navigate it. There's a bioethics problem. You know, how do we balance um, somebody's right to feel safe or to say to have informed consent, to say no to what medical treatments they, they take? And, and the way that we've dealt with COVID is a new thing. The pandemics aren't necessarily a new thing, but, are, but it's new to a lot of us how we're going through it. So I think it's worth addressing the issue. So my bill basically says that the government can't mandate the COVID-19 vaccine on people. And they can't penalize people for not having that. Now, in the House, in the Republican Party, conservatives are having this debate about the clash of liberties. An individual has a right to say, I want this medical treatment or not. And they have a right to certain medical autonomy and privacy. And those are some values that are well recognized. And we want a public accommodation for religious freedom, for people to be, have their religious beliefs uh, accommodated as best they can reasonably by the government and by society. And then there's this other right, maybe of a business to say, Here's who I want to have working here. Here are the conditions I want. Here's what I think is safe. Here's what I think is best for my customers and my employers. And conservatives have also long recognized that right and wanted to make sure that was respected in, in the law. So there's a clash there. And so for that part of for the employer piece, I try to reconcile that through existing public accommodation law, that if somebody has a sincerely held religious belief and the reasonable accommodation is not an undue burden, then the employer recognizes that. Or, and, we all, and everybody knows you have to grant a medical, medical exemption, but it hasn't been well-defined what that means, so I just give definition to it, that if you go to a doctor or physician, they say, hey, there's contraindication, this medical treatment, or for whatever reason, the COVID vaccine is not right for you, then that's good enough for you to identify your exemption. And I think that's helpful, too, because um, we're talking about the workforce shortage in Missouri. We're talking about you know, people working where and, and finding labor, and we're talking about, okay, if you've got a federal mandate, like everyone who's a Medicaid and Medicare provider, are under the CMS rule for that mandate right now in order to receive those federal funds. And they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the law in Missouri and how do we navigate the federal law? Giving those businesses clarity for a way in which they could say, okay, you've got a, you've got a reason you don't want to take the COVID vaccine. I want to have a requirement as a business, but you've got a reason. You've got a medical reason. You've got a religious exemption. Here's how I define that. Here's how I process that. Here's what that means. That's probably a valuable problem for us to solve. So I think that's good. I don't want to make it harder for businesses. I don't want to make it harder for employees. I want to address the problem so it's easier for them to deal with it. Yeah, you kept this 
ban on mandates to public entities as opposed to private right. businesses. You yeah. know, kind of. But there has been some who do believe it should be no mandates on period. Why? Sure. Why not cross over to that uh, private sector? Yeah. So personally, my personal belief. Like Bill talking philosophically, I don't think anybody should be made to take a medicine. Right? I think there's there's a there's a moral boundary around a person. They could they should say no to things that go into their body. I think that's true. I believe that like, ontologically. I think informed consent was hard. It's not, informed consent's not the history of the world either. Informed consent as we know it today was something developed in the 20th century, as medical science developed, as medical technology developed, and now in the 21st century, we're about to develop a whole new era of medical technologies of of different kinds of technologies of all of all genres, and so okay, how do we make sure we reaffirm the principle of informed consent while we're having evolution in our technology? And so for me, somebody being able to say no is something really important. When when we're thinking about what's a good policy, there's some of the considerations I talked about. Okay, we need a majority coalition. We need the majority of people to be on board. We need something that, as we think about all the things that I can think about how it'll affect businesses and the people in the world. And then all the things I can't think, all the things I can envision, the consequences of it. Okay, how do I have a policy that addresses that and still adheres to the principles I want? I want our businesses in Missouri to thrive. I want our hospitals and our medical clinics to be successful, to stay open, to be able to treat people. I want people to feel like the government is addressing issues. And I want us to affirm the rights of individuals and, and say that medical privacy, religious liberty, and informed consent are sacrosanct values. I want us to do all those things. So how do we do that? And that, it's, kind of where I, it's kind of where I fell on, instead of banning the employer mandates altogether, we want to have a compromise about a way to navigate the mandates from the federal government. Now, from the, from a, for, for the government mandating, I think it's a completely different issue. Right? The government's a public trust. And um, you know, the problem of the use of knowledge in a society, does the government know what's the best medical treatment for you? I think that, you know, this, the state can say, here's what we, here's what we have available. We're going to make this available. Here's the solutions we have to a problem. And th there is a public health interest in the state being involved. But when I say I'm going to tell you you have to take a particular medicine, and we set a precedent for that. And then as we invent new technologies, if the state can say you must take this medicine, medical treatment or this whatever, and I'll tie your rights and your ability to function in society to that, that's a problem. And that's a bad situation. And we don't want to do that. So, um, so I think it's a good principle to affirm. And, and that was kind of the idea. It was really important to me. And it was a hard issue. It's a hard issue to tackle because it's controversial because COVID people, um, you know, COVID is a disease that's affected a lot of people. And uh, and the and, and the way and the government response to it has affected a lot of people with businesses being shut down and mandates and the burden that's been on people and their conscience and stuff like that. So it's a hard issue to tackle. But that, but I was excited to tackle something that's legally complex and morally complex and that was important to a lot of people. And I think still is important to a lot of people. So I think it's worth solving. And uh, I try to do it in a way where I talk to people and I'm, I'm, I'm listening and we're thinking about how to address the issue in a responsible way. Well, I affirm those values that I was talking about. So on the House side, your bill is a, a series of bills related to COVID-19, things that are a result of the pandemic. You know, we're in year three of this pandemic. You know, why are these bills you feel like still needed? What are situations appearing that the House is still passing these bills? Yeah. So my class was elected in, in 2020, when in, in COVID, we had shutdowns and we had, uh, you know, stay at home orders around the world. And uh, we were just trying to figure out how do we deal with this, right? Can we make people stay in their home? Should we? Should we shut down businesses? Should we deny hospitals the ability to elective sur surgeries? surgeries? This, the class that I'm in, the Republicans anyway, largely ran on, okay, government overreach and freedom and, that, and, and, and made that pitch to voters. 
And so first that was in the forefront of our mind. We were the COVID class. The issue became one of the, the major topics in the country about, you know, should you have your, your family member with you when you go back into the hospital? Should you have a right to have your parent with you or your spouse with you? Um, you know, sh- what, what limitations should government have for shutting down businesses or imposing mass mandates or vaccine mandates? That was an issue on the forefront. So a lot of us wanted to solve it. But it's also a, a product of, in 2021, I probably got more emails and phone calls over vaccine mandates than any other issue easily. There were some days I was getting a ton of them, right, saying do something about this. And I, I think that's part of my job is to listen to people and say, hey, there's a problem. Let's address it. And maybe the outcome's different than the, the initial bill that I filed or any bill that we wanted to have. But we said, hey, we're going to, it's difficult. There's controversy. Some people aren't going to like the way we address it, but we're going to address it because I think it's important. And it's not just political value. There's sociological and, and ethical value in doing that, I think. So, it, you know, it was an issue that came to the forefront. And we also had a change in administration. Joe Biden came into the White House and the mandates became a thing and they became a subject of controversy. But I don't think that all the opposition to it is purely political. I think there's a philosophical and moral opposition to it, too, right? Like, you know, can the government tell you you have to take a medicine? You know, and there's administrative law point, too. The OC mandate was basically struck down. But can we use these other regulations to enforce all kinds of different things on businesses? And those are those are really good philosophical questions for us to answer. And as and just like I said, we'll have new issues. We rejumbled our coalitions and electorates, I think. Uh, another area of bills that I've seen the House emphasize is in election bills, uh, voter ID, initiative petition reform, resolutions. You know, why do you think there's been kind of an emphasis on that this year? Yeah, no, I, I think it's responsive to it. It's responsive to what's been happening. Um, so in the election realm, there are a lot of people who even if, so whatever you think about the 2020 election, whether or not you think they're whatever, whatever you think. And all kinds of people think different things. Um, there are some people who don't trust our election process. And, and that didn't start with 2020. That started kind of with 2000. It, it kind of goes every election cycle. There is, right, these voting machines or whatever. But even in 2016, was there Russian uh, meddling? Was there, was there Russian influence? Is there external, you know, foreign government influence? So people didn't really trust. There was, some people didn't trust the results of the 2016 election. And some people didn't trust the results of the 2020 election. So we need to make people feel like their vote's being counted and that the election process is valid. And that they can trust it. And that's and that's critically important, right, that people feel like whether that's a Republican or Democrat that got elected, people felt like they were duly elected. And so whatever you think about, you know, the election itself, I will say at least it's a problem that we want to make sure people have trust and confidence in the election. And so that's good. You know, I support a voter ID requirement. I like to see paper ballots, not electronic machines. I think whether you're Republican or Democrat, those are some things that you could say, okay, paper ballot, there's a trail. We know it's not the, you know. Everybody I talk to, Democrat or Republican, doesn't like the, but, the buttons you push. And there, every election year, there's like, oh, there's 10,000 votes already for George Bush or John Kerry or whatever. So we don't want that. And so, and, and there are different approaches. The Republicans, Democrats had different approaches to what they think makes people trust the election. But I think that's what it's about. And that's what it's about for me. So we have, I'm happy to support those things that I think don't deny access to the ballot, that meet the constitutional standards. Voting is a right. We want people to vote. We want every legal vote to be counted. Um, but we also want to make people feel se- that the election is secure and they can trust the outcome. And that's what keeps us from having um, these bad results of people feeling like their government's illegitimate, right? Part of, part of the, the civil society, the peace in society, is you go, well, I didn't win, but we had a vote, I lost the vote, and I trust the vote. And in two years and four years and six years, we'll get to vote again. But if people don't feel like that's part of the process, that's when people start um, 
that's when the, the social contract of our government falls apart a little bit, I think. The House has a couple of kind of big bills on the horizon. I want to kind of quickly talk about those sure. two. Uh, one uh, is legalizing sports betting in the state. Yeah. And as we're taping this, the House actually uh, perfected it on the House floor today. Yeah. Thoughts on this? Is, is this overdue for Missouri? Yeah, you know, I have some libertarian components to me about is there, you know, is there a victim to that? Should we regulate that? And who's, who's the person hurt? I'm not a big gambler myself. But, um, you, know, if people are, you know, if people are voting on like these NCAA brackets, right, if they're, if they're um, gambling on that, they have pools on that and stuff like that, okay, should the government be penalizing them, criminalizing that? And then how is that functionally different if they do it on a large-scale enterprise? And so I'm okay if us saying we're not going to criminalize sports betting. I think that's okay. Now, some people have good arguments about you don't want to use vices as your source of revenue because then you encourage it. I think it's a good argument. But I also think at some level we got to let people take responsibility for themselves. If they want to gamble, they can gamble, and the state can collect revenue off of it. And it's almost like a voluntary tax. If you want to engage in that activity, you could pay the money to the state. So I'm okay with that. I'm not critical of it. I mean, we're looking at the language, the final language, too, and what language comes back to us. But uh, I think it's something, you know, uh, even if you don't, you're not a fan of gambling, you could say, okay, what, what's our government's interest in criminalizing that and sending people to prison and jail for having these betting pools functionally or these large-scale betting pools? No, I mean, that's, that seems like it makes sense to me. An- another bill I want to talk about is the Cannabis Freedom Act. Yeah. Uh, it's completed a public hearing. Hasn't yeah. moved from that yet, but thoughts on this legislation. Uh, what are the odds of it making it out of the House? Uh, so Ron has done a, a great job of going to pretty much everybody and being like, what are you concerned about? And um, and trying to get something that, that moves his priority forward. And there's some good stuff in there, some good criminal justice reform, I think. Um, some concerns I have about recreational legalization of cannabis. Some people say adult use of cannabis. Or do we need to update our open container law, our impairment law? What about um, you know public use, like in parks and stuff like that? What about exposure, exposure, unwanted exposure to the people? So those things we really need to kind of address and figure out how the law addresses that, and you know what, how we redefine what a DWI is. And that's funny too that you know DWI and marijuana possession is almost at a complete juxtaposition. Forty years ago, if you possessed a small amount of marijuana, it was heavily punished, heavily shunned by society. But a DWI wasn't. Or, you know, right? A DWI was commonplace. Now we're almost the reverse. We have very strict penalties that escalate quickly for DWI multiple offenses. But cannabis is functionally decriminalized in Missouri. So, okay, society changes, culture changes. Let's figure out a way to, you know, we address that going forward. Uh, Ron's a good guy. Um, Ron's done a great job. And I think Ron has a, he's really just, I, I really am genuinely impressed with the way he's handled that bill. And we'll see what the product looks like as it comes out of public safety. Um, but I think there is, there's a coalition that will pass uh, recreational marijuana at some point in legislature. I don't know if it'll be this year or not. But I think at some point that will probably happen. Yeah. So kind of an argument has been made that with the initiative petition process, marijuana is coming either on the ballot uh, through a constitutional amendment or through the legislature. You know, do you think that might be a motivator for some that maybe wouldn't have voted on it in years past? Know that it might be this year that it appears on the ballot. Well, same thing about with elections. You don't want to say, well, if you don't do this, something worse will happen. I mean, we're here. You know, we can't say theoretically something will pass. We just have to say this is a good or bad law and vote based on the merits. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Representative Harvick, for joining me here in our Jefferson City office. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. Representative Hardwick, where can people find you on the Internet where you want to be found? Uh, I guess if you Google me, you'll find me. I mean, I'm <laughs> on the, the Facebooks. I'm not really on Twitter. It's not like a rural thing. but That's okay. Yeah, but I'll get Twitter eventually. People can find me there. So One day in the future. <laughs> all right. Until next time. So long.